Hi, Aisha here. If you've been listening to the Weekly Economics podcast for a while, whether it's our episodes on the economics of mental health or climate change or Brexit, you've probably heard most of our guests return to one big concept, neoliberalism. You might know a bit about what neoliberalism means, but how many of us know the full history of the idea? Or could explain it to a mate. So, for the next six weeks, starting with this episode, we're doing something a bit different. We're telling the story of neoliberalism from the beginning. We call it A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism. We first ran the series back in 2015, but it's as relevant as ever. It's presented by the journalist Kirsty Stiles alongside James Meadway, who at the time was chief economist here at the New Economics Foundation. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you back here in June for some brand new episodes. Knock, knock. Who's there? George Milton Osborne. Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to the first in a special series of podcasts that we're calling A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism. If you don't know what neoliberalism is, don't worry, me neither. But that's the very question we're going to be putting to weekly economics podcast regular James Meadway. But what the Honourable Member is saying is that he would rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That way you will never create the wealth for better social services as we have. And what a policy! So far as poverty is concerned, there has never in history been a more effective machine for eliminating poverty than the free enterprise system and the free market. The period in... If you look at the real problems of poverty and denial of freedom to people in this country, almost every single one of them is a result of government action. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. So James, this mini-series for the weekly economics podcast is about the bigger picture behind the issues we cover every week. Uh, That's the economic system that uh, leads to all of uh, the issues that we've been talking about. So that's the great American dream. That's capitalism, right, James? Yeah, that's basically it. Yes, we we live in a a capitalist society, a capitalist economy. Um, Probably the quickest and easiest way to to think about this is to say that what you've got with capitalism is uh, lots of competition between lots of people who own capital, who own basically wealth, Uh, And this competition and this drive to accumulate capital is what gives the whole system its kind of drive to grow and expand and transform the world and innovate and all those other exciting things capitalism is supposed to do. So then with this kind of fairly chaotic system, there's lots of different ways that governments can choose to try and run the thing. And the one we're talking about here is what often gets known as neoliberalism, which provides the kind of rules of the game for uh, governments to, to work out how they should try and regulate and run capitalism. Okay, so neoliberalism describes these this uh, particular set of rules, particular type of capitalism. Uh, what do these rules kind of amount to? Well, it's, it's probably fairly familiar. It's got to the point where these are so familiar, it's just really quite deeply ingrained as to how we think about the economy. And basically it boils down to saying that that uh, markets are very, very good, uniquely good at organising the economy and organising society. Uh, that if you don't have a market somewhere, you should try and get somebody to behave and institutions to behave as if there isn't a market. So government should set 
set targets, you know, and expect people to try and try and meet them. Uh, New Labour was very keen and that sort of thing. And then, of course, if people behave as if they're in a market and as if they're all competing and out for themselves and all that sort of stuff, then really you end up with the best possible set of outcomes from, from neoliberalism. So within that, what you find is a process often of deregulation, strikingly so, where you say things like if you have money, you can take it anywhere in the world, you can invest it where you like. You say that you try and reduce taxes, uh, particularly on wealth. You want to get away from the taxation of wealth. And you create the idea that particularly those who have capital, who have wealth, uh, are really the ones in charge and what we should be doing is listening very carefully to them and responding to their needs. Okay, well, I don't know if anybody's ever been to Warrington Market, but uh, that's not quite the neoliberal vision uh, that you've set out there. So where did where do these ideas come from, James? Well, this idea is, is I suppose, it's kind of a long gestation period for, for this sort of thing. There's a couple of sort of key individuals who, who respond really to the crisis of the 1930s. I mean, that's how far back you have to go, which is this terrible systemic crisis with capitalism. Nothing seems to work. It's the Great Depression. Nothing seems to move. There are these incredible challenges to the system of all sorts of different varieties. Uh, and this idea that emerges and the belief that emerges probably correctly that the way the system, broadly speaking, functioned before the First World War, um, that it was quite liberal, that government intervention was minimal, that you didn't have big trade unions and labour movements and socialist parties that were able to place demands on society. All of these things didn't really exist. That You're now in a world where these things do exist and there has to be a way to try and make capitalism work. One version of how you make capitalism work is basically what we end up calling Keynesianism. This gets applied after uh, the Second World War. Another version of it, which is incredibly unpopular for most of the period after the Second World War, that kind of decades afterwards, but a few true believers stick to it, people like Friedrich von Hayek, who's outstanding uh, amongst this, is the idea that, okay, we'll just kind of adjust the way the state operates, we'll adjust how society operates, we'll try and make it more like this competitive vision uh, that we have that is the ideal form of a capitalist society. I'd just like to point out the use of the word outstanding there was not uh, in the sense of being dead good. Well, he's, he's, he's an interesting, he's a very, very interesting thinker and he's, he's kind of worth reading just because he's very insightful in lots of different ways about how capitalism operates. He is, at the same time, someone who insists that really the best way of thinking about how society functions is to ensure that people think about themselves just as individuals and that things like concentrations of wealth, concentrations of power, if they've been arrived at through a market process, through a process of competition uh, amongst firms and this sort of thing, then that's actually the best possible outcome we can get to. So there's lots and lots you disagree with him, but he's certainly an interesting thinker. Okay, so you mentioned that it was unpopular from uh, the kind of 1930s. When did these ideas come back um, into the kind of uh, mainstream? Well, this is the, the interesting part of it. What you're looking at here is, is the Second World War, uh, defeat of fascism in Europe, the creation of welfare states uh, also in Europe, you know, the arrival of the NHS, uh, free education up to 15, all these sort of big things. Much of the world we now live with created out of this. And the idea that governments can intervene in the economy and society and make things better becomes pretty dominant. This is basically what gets known as Keynesianism. People who thought otherwise, people who thought that you can't just have governments and society deciding how an economy works. You have to leave it to basically the market and corporations. They're completely marginalised. So Hayek, along with some of his co-thinkers, realising this, sets up something called the Mont Pelerin Society, uh, named after the, the Swiss sort of mountain resort where they were meeting. And they kind of retreat to the mountains to think about the world and try and devise ways of dealing with this changed circumstances they're up against. And they, they build up a network, for example, of think tanks of different organisations who can argue for this, what emerges as a neoliberal vision 
vision of the world, a world where competition is the most important thing, where markets dominate, where the idea of government intervention in the way that it developed under Keynesianism is pushed to one side. And they do this for a number of years. They develop this. They don't really get much foothold in popular circles. They don't have political parties to argue for it. It's the crisis of the 1970s that starts to give them their, their opportunity. Okay, James, so in practice, uh, how uh, does this start to manifest itself uh, 40 years ago? Well, the, the, the issue here is, is there are a couple of key moments, and it happens, there's a big shift globally that you can see taking place really from the, the early 70s onwards, I suppose, the, the coup in, in uh, Chile with uh, Augusto Pinochet taking over from Salvador Allende uh, is the first place where you start to get some of these neoliberal principles implemented and deliberately implemented. We're going to break up socialism, any idea that the government can act in favour of society rather in favour of the rich, we'll just get rid of all that. And they, they do it, and they apply it quite uh, forcefully, as you might expect under a military dictatorship. But for the rest of uh, the rest of the world, a big turn, at least in the sort of democratic countries, is um, what happens with the election of Margaret Thatcher, first as Conservative leader in 1975, and then obviously as Prime Minister in 1979, and then Reagan, Ronald Reagan, US President, elected a few years later. Um, they explicitly say they're going to make a break with how governments had tried to run the economy uh, in the years beforehand. It was a break with this kind of Keynesianism, post-war consensus, and that Thatcher, you know, she said she was going to roll back the frontiers of the state, she was going to get the state out of the way of people's lives. She was going to have a flourishing of entrepreneurship. And that meant doing things like getting rid of capital control. So it would mean that whereas before you'd have restrictions, particularly on the wealthy and how you might move your wealth and your capital across the world between different countries, you'd get rid of those restrictions, essentially gone in the UK in 1979. You'd privatise large parts of uh, the economy. You'd allow people to own what things that used to be publicly owned. So enormous corporations, really like um, you know chunks of BP, uh, British Gas, water, eventually railways, the whole pattern of privatisation. This is how the thing starts to be implemented, in Britain especially after 79. I know that my dad would probably say that, that the crisis was was a, a tough time and people wanted things to be different. Can you, can you kind of analyse that at all? Well, this is, this is the issue, that what you had was something that seemed to be very, very successful. It appeared to be a very successful way of running the world, at least in, in the West, uh, in countries like, you know, like Britain and like America and like Western Europe, that this Keynesianism appeared to be delivering the goods but for decades, that you had very high rates of growth. You had, uh, as Harold Macmillan, Prime Minister in the 50s said, uh, famously, you know, you've never had it so good. And that was really true, that people had immense improvements in their living standards in these countries. This kind of comes grinding to a halt. Uh, from the late 60s onwards and into the 70s, where it turns out that a lot of the tools that people had that they thought would work, Richard Nixon, uh, US president saying, we're all Keynesians now, and they attempt to respond to the crisis, rising unemployment with Keynesian methods, just don't seem to work. So the old rule book doesn't work. You have to do something different. And it's at this point you get this turn by governments and by parties into and towards neoliberalism as an alternative to the kind of failures, the perceived failures of Keynesianism. Okay, so you've obviously identified that Margaret Thatcher and then uh, um, John Major would have uh, kind of carried on that that kind of idea. But we get to 1997, it's New Labour. Um, were they also in support of neoliberalism? Well, essentially, yes. I mean, what you get with, with New Labour is a kind of neoliberalism with a human face. That instead of quite an aggressive, uh, assertive, strident tone that you had with the Thatcher government, you know, sort of wound down a bit uh, by John Major, you had this 
offer from New Labour that we could keep much of what Margaret Thatcher did. We're not going to wind the clock back, but we can kind of make it seem a bit nicer, get rid of some of the rough edges. So you introduce a national minimum wage, you increase uh, actually government spending a, a little, uh, you still sort of try and make things seem a little bit better than it used to be. But much of what Thatcher and subsequent governments locked into place, so you don't uh, fundamentally intrude on, for example, what the City of London and financial services are doing, you don't intrude on the capacity of rich people to decide what they do with their money more or less as they as they see fit. You don't put up taxes on the wealthy. You don't do all these things. You accept what Thatcher in the UK and Thatcher's governments had established. So you get this kind of version of neoliberalism, a kind of softer version of neoliberalism, but it's still neoliberal in the way of thinking about the world. It's still saying that basically markets are right, government activity should be limited, and there's not a lot you can do about this. Uh, okay, so um, we are where we are. Um, are there people, uh, organisations putting forward plausible alternatives today? Can we rewrite the rules? Well, this is this is where it gets, uh, I think, interesting in the period since, particularly since the, the crisis, 2007-2008, that you had in this country especially, the most neoliberal part of the whole economy, the most sort of unrestrained and powerful and a massive concentration of wealth uh, that was and is the financial sector basically collapses uh, and virtually dies and has to be rescued uh, somewhat ironically by, by the government at huge expense. These are the bailouts, this is the recession afterwards, this is all that chaos there. So you have at this point the possibility of something new developing, but it doesn't quite happen in this country. But I think if you look across other places that have gone through that, kind of shock of seeing neoliberalism fail. If you look to what's happened, I think particularly in South America, where you get governments uh, elected in response to some of the failures that you saw in the 1980s through the debt crisis, through the imposition of neoliberalism, that you get these governments elected who do try and do something different and try and construct an alternative to the belief and the application of policy, which is that markets are always right and there's nothing you can do about it. What 2007 and 8 reveals is just the vulnerability of the system and the vulnerability of a system that's completely deregulated. And if it's vulnerable, it's open to change. And that, I think, is where the hope lies. OK, James, well, that has been the first of uh, what is going to be many deeper looks into some of the ideas behind some of the things that we're addressing every week at the Weekly Economics podcast. Thank you very much for making something so complicated so easy for once. Thank you. <laughs> We'll be back at the same time next week.